So here we go. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places a dive and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 367 is recorded live May 17th, 2018. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where it is still a tad squishy. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. I think we've had a nice two days of sunshine, mild weather, and hopefully it'll start drying up the ground. Yeah, we we need a little bit of dry. Oh, it's, uh, you know, my, my, my basement is... Well, it's a it's a most well, I call a mostly dry basement. Occasionally, water when it comes the correct or incorrect direction, it will make a little bit of leaking going on, and uh, so I've I've had a little bit of that experience this last week. So, but I I did put uh, a semi worth of gravel in the driveway, so at least uh, we're not squishing down into the uh, sinkholes. Well, I have learned in any basement one. Put down two by fours or something to put the boxes on. Yes. Number two, don't use cardboard boxes in the basement. <laughs> yes. You better put plastic, those big tubs. Yeah. Yeah, because cardboard just likes to laminate itself right to the basement floor. And it doesn't even, you don't even have to have water for that to happen. Just, a, you know, your dehumidifier die for a couple of days and you'll have that. I don't, I don't know if people in the other parts of the country need dehumidifiers if they have basements, but you certainly do here in Michigan. And you need the humidifier topside during the winter. Otherwise, you're going to arc and spark. Yes. <laughs> I can, I, I've gotten out of my car, grabbed my keys, touched that lock, and the garage is dark. So, and you can, you know, it must be about a, a two-inch part from my hand to that door when I <laughs> hit it with the key. Well, and that still hurts. I, I think you might be able to qualify for uh, a role on X-Men then. <laughs> I'll, I'd rather not, but... <laughs> You've you've got superpowers. I think it's because I have nylon and I run it across the seat when I get out of the car and I don't <laughs> grab the door to ground myself. I get yeah. out. So I charge myself really good. Yeah, I hear that's really great if you do that, the gas pump, too. I hear that could be quite explosive. <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody who has joined us this week in the chat room. Uh, let me bring that chat room to the front. Uh, we have Derek and Eric are both joining us and i'm sure more will filter in as we we get to going so let's um we got a full news cycle this week for some reason some weeks we'll only have a a couple articles and this week we have a ton of them so we're gonna go ahead and jump right on into the news Uh, in in this first one i believe this comes from undercurrent magazine january 2018 it says another right coco's tiger shard attack is that Cocos? Is that how you say it? Caicos? Cocos? I'm not real sure. I hear people say Caicos, but that does not, that's spelled more Coco. C-O-C-O-S. Uh, a lucky 30-year-old German male diver escaped intact after being attacked by a tiger shark near near uh, Mantelutia Island, Isle del Cocos, 
Costa Rica on April 28th. The animal bit into his tank and his BC, but he managed to free himself from his rig and swim to the surface while the shark ripped his gear to pieces as other divers looked on. He was shaken but unhurt. Last November, an American died after a tiger shark attack at the same location. This is the sixth confirmed unprovoked shark attack in Costa Rican waters since dive records began. I'm surprised somebody did not have a video. With with everybody having GoPros and stuff, you'd have thought that somebody would have. Uh, and I, and I think yeah, any, uh, I mean, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> oh, oh, chat chat room's gonna. I don't know if they're asking for the link. I didn't have a link to that one, so let me just. Uh, if you go ahead and and Google for undercurrent January two thousand eighteen. Uh, if you're not familiar, we used to get undercurrent years ago. Uh, the reason we got it because it was unbiased and it told you the way it was. It wasn't a good resort. They told you they didn't like the regulator. They told you. Uh, and their prices went up a little bit, and the club has not rejoined it. But maybe we might just do that again. Well, Undercurrent, I think you can maybe you can get that for free. Uh, the website is www.undercurrent.org. Yeah, you can get certain articles, but to get the whole item, I mean, you know, all, the whole, all the articles. Uh-huh. Uh, you got to be. Yeah, they they're they're trying to encourage you to subscribe then. And then another article, which I think put those came, teasers. Yeah, and I think another article that came from them is "Don't flame your mask." And they say that last month uh, they reported to their subscribers a few Hollis masks had shattered when divers hit the water, and now they have found out the culprit. It wasn't the mask, but actually the diver. They say, as you know, you must polish the inside surface of the mask to remove the coating and prevent it from fogging. However, some divers came up with a little bit of a shortcut. Uh, they tried to burn the coating off with a cigarette lighter. The downside is that this can weaken the tempered glass and may result in frameless single-face plate masks shattering on impact with the water. They said, especially if the strap is pulled so tight it stresses the weakened glass. They say the proper way to remove the film is to polish the glass with a gentle abrasive such as old-fashioned white toothpaste. So that, that sounds like uh, one of those, ah, here, here's a quick way of getting it done. And then we have another article from Undercurrent, and this one is called Me Too in the Dive Industry. Uh Yo-Yo Wang was getting ready for a barbecue night aboard the Galapagos Aggressor 3 last September when she stepped out of the bathroom after the shower to get dressed. She realized there's a pair of creepy eyes peering right into my room through the blinds that were not closed properly. Wang panicked and froze, but she could clearly tell it was somebody wearing a grayish hoodie. She steps back into the bathroom to get dressed and quickly opened the door of her cabin just to see a gray-hooded figure fleeing towards the captain's room. Wang gathered her nerve and went upstairs to barbecue. All the divers and crews were there, but there was only one person wearing the exact gray hoodie. Uh, I saw on the peeper. Exactly. Peeking town. Peeper. Oh, peeper. Okay. I I'm, I'm, didn't quite get it there for a second. The captain, Refugio Chile, Wang said, he acted if nothing had happened. I was astonished and scared because I thought the crew would, no crew would stand behind me if I accused the captain. So I chose to stay silent and didn't tell any of the divers. Wang, a 22-year-old economics PhD candidate at the University of Chicago, contacted the Gresser fleet after a trip. CEO Wayne Hassan told her they would investigate. A month later, he told Wang that Captain Chile had admitted 
to peeping, but that according to Ecuadorian law, the captain can't be fired or demoted and can't be charged in court unless she showed up in Ecuador to make a case. Wang asked for more concrete solutions from aggressor, but no one replied. She then post- posted her experience online to Scuba, Gore, Scuba Board and Aggressor's Facebook page. That's how she found out that a woman on the dive trip was also harassed by Chile. But Aggressor deleted the post when friends of hers who were planning to take the Galapagos Aggressor contacted company about diver security. A staff member defended his company's actions and questioned Wang's motive, saying it's possible that a young girl, she might have wanted to get more attention by exaggerating the story which I'm going to interject here. And that's exactly what everybody who wants to save, if you're trying to save your bacon, that's just going to get everybody riled up. Uh, So much for the values of aggressor fleet holds towards its passenger. Wang says, I was astonished by the vulnerability of female diver security and the inability of this seemingly prestigious company to resolve the sexual harassment case. Wang's tale is not an isolated one. Through the decade, women divers experience everything from what are you doing here looks as they approach the dive boat to condescending comments when buying or earning gear to sexually charged actions that go from mildly flirtatious to cross-the-line harassment and undercurrents book. There's a cockroach in my regulator. Three instances are reported in which female novice divers are groped underwater by their instructors with no way to bail out. So we asked our readers at the Me Too stories, and a few had some back-in-the-day tales there are more than norm than they should have been. Ann Keller, Irving, Texas, remembers she was the only woman in class and she took her Naui open water course 40 years ago. It was apparent they didn't think girls should be divers. They were productive, pro- provocative girly posters in the classroom area. It was definitely considered a, a manly sport back then. Towards the end of the training, I was in the pool with foil inside my mask to block my vision. The instructor turned off my air, pinched my nipple to see how I'd react. I was shocked but I was in no position to complain. I wanted my C card. All those stories are still happening to dive industry, especially when Me Too movement caught fire in the U.S. Might have caught on in other more remote parts of the world. We also wondered whether sexual harassment training is part of the dive training curriculum these days and whether issues are addressed differently or more in depth. After all, a great number of dive instructors are men between age 18 and 30 who become instructors and guides at destinations off the beaten path. So we contacted all the dive training agencies as well as resorts and liveaboards and far-flung places to see how they handle these matters. We only got a few responses, which seemed to suggest the dive industry in general still doesn't want to talk about this issue. He seemed to give me a hard time because I was a woman. Most of the respondents we got from women were less than less about sexual harassment, more about being bullied and belittled. Charlene Baker, a Trimix diver who has owned a dive shop in Calgary, Alberta for 24 years, was en route to a dive trip in Vancouver Island last year and stopped at a dive shop with their twin 130 cubic feet tank filled up. The employee there was confused why I need such big tanks. There's no question what kind of dive I was planning on doing, but I went through 30 minutes of questions. According to staff, I was diving the wrong equipment. My dive buddies, all men, have stopped many times at this location to get their tanks filled, and they've never been asked a single question about why they are diving with tanks too big for them. Kathy O'Connor, Virginia Beach, California, was with her husband in Aruba. They up to dive gear in the boat when the dive guide asked her how many dives she had done. I told him 400 plus. He said that's impossible and made me disassemble and reassemble the dive gear. Then he told me he'd be watching me very carefully and dive because he didn't believe me. I'm petite, older woman, admit I don't look very outdoorsy, but he seemed to be giving me a hard time because I'm a woman and claimed to know what I was doing. Maybe Sherry Kimes, Palm Springs, Ca- uh, California had the same dive guide. Hers in Aruba was most annoying she'd ever had. 
I can think of all the other divers or men. We had a giant stride entry from the back of the boat. I had my gear in order. I had done a thousand dives. They kept rearranging my gear and implying I don't know what I was doing. I think I finally told them to butt out and just jumped in. None of the other divers, including my husband, experienced this. Guess I wasn't capable of arranging my gear because I was a female. But overall, my experiences, primarily in the Caribbean and Southeast Asia, were fine. Other readers also wrote to say their dive trips went on without any hitches. But last year, one California reader who wants to stay anonymous had the worst experience we've heard of. During a party night in a Galapagos liveaboard trip, one crew member put his fingers in a place where they shouldn't have been. It was shock. It was a shocking assault, and I'm still upset about it. In my 50s and a professional writer, neither a porn actress nor somebody with victim written on their forehead. Uh, I've even tried to get Patty on board to help sort out Internet problems. So how do training agencies deal with these matters? Whoops. Oh, thanks, Eric Payson in the chat room. So how do training agencies deal with these matters when they train instructors? Obviously, it should be part of the curriculum, perhaps even a broader diversity training session, especially important because most students are a bunch of hormone-directed guys, 18, much older, who have more than a few bikini-clad women in their classes on their dive boats and as co-workers. We've received a couple of comments from readers who trained and work as dive masters in the United Kingdom where they say the sensitivities and comments toward women aren't that much different. While doing dive master training in 2000, Debbie Morey, North Chesterfield, Virginia instructor who wore shorts and no underwear, the legs were loose, and he sat in the desk in front of me, one leg up and one leg down, she says. I finished the program despite him. It made me very uncomfortable, and thinking back on it, I should have said something. Lisa Thomas, managing director for New Dawn Dive Center in Working Surrey, England, says sex discrimination in the dive industry is rife there, and a lot of bad behavior comes from her students. I was about to get out of the dive boat and was told, there's no room for you, love. Luckily, the other instructor told the students who made this comment that they had better let their instructor on board or they wouldn't get taught. I am permanently on a mission to stamp out sexism and have so many examples, personal ones and directed towards customers, Thomas said. I even tried to get Patty on board to help sort out the in- inherent problem. We asked both Patty and Naui how they handle these problems, but neither responded, perhaps a reflection that they don't. However, Stephanie Malie, Chief Operating Officer of STI, TDI, ERDI, was ready to talk, and she recently wrote an article on the topic for her agency's website. Check out her piece, Being Young and Female in an Old Man's Industry, and we'll have the links in the show notes. When it comes to treating women divers badly, I think it happens less than it did 20 years ago, she said. I don't hear as many stories about it. I think people are finally waking up. Still, she says, dive training agencies are unable to be hands-on supervisors. We don't train directly. We oversee the training standards, so we don't have face-to-face interaction or hands-on touch. However, we get sexual harassment complaint filed. If an action needs to be taken, we take it swiftly. It's up to the employers to handle bad staff, says Alex Bryant, part owner of Emperor Fleet Liveaboards, which cruise around the Red Sea and Maldives in Indonesia. In general, this has always been an issue in places like these. Unfortunately, most top dive destinations are in developing world where education is still limited and cultures are very male-dominated. The type of people who work in the dive industry, as a majority, are also people who have tried to escape the real world, therefore don't take their job very seriously, and are there for a bit of fun. This attitude applies even the more so outside the water, where they want and expect to have fun. It's therefore the responsibility of the employer to train and set certain expectations of our staff, but also quickly remove any 
who show the wrong attitude towards safety and respect towards clients. In the end, I feel this is what it boils down to, respect for all people relevant of race, age, religion, or gender. And then there's nothing here that implies sexual harassment. With a lot of focus on Me Too in the U.S. and a little tension played in other parts, there continues to be a clash on how women are seen and treated in the dive industry. A perfect example of the clash is a photo posted on Facebook of Nad Limbert Resort in Indonesia's Limbert Strait. In it, Nando, an employee who also an in-house artist, is showing off his new artwork of the resort's special edition t-shirts. The shirts are worn by two women standing on either side of Nando with their backs towards the camera. Nando is facing his front with his hands extended down to look like they're cupping the woman's backsides wearing a big smile. Immediately, comments were posted to the photo was sexist and offensive. The resort owner Simon replied that one woman with a comment like, if you don't like it, then don't come here. The resort later erased all comments and pinned this one, said, so far in this post, we've been told how men are stupid. This woman has no self-respect if she takes part in a joke such as this, that God will somehow take vengeance on this post to top it off at sexual harassment. We've all been told that we should have taken it down. We will not censor this post as there is nothing in here that implies sexual harassment. Nando's hands is not grabbing anything. In fact, we're not even touching. It's just a set-up photo with a bit of fun and two lady bosses. You're welcome to disagree, but insulting people is not required. Perhaps it comes down to cultural views. When asked sources overseas what they thought of the photo, most said it was funny side of it. They wouldn't even look twice. One is that Miranda Coverdale, owner of Dive in Limba in North Suwasi, not far from, oh, I'm not going to say the name anymore, Nat is one of the few diving at operations that genuinely care for its staff and environment and they have a sense of humor too this is no harm done here this is coming from a woman who's worked many years in egypt sudan and asia but mealy s-t-s-d-i-t-d-i would certainly not let her company post that photo i don't see the point of it it's not selling anything and i find it offensive and then doing a me too was imperative so in a time when so much cultural and political changes happen the points of views about these changes are still taking time to shift how should the dive industry interact with women. Treat them like queens they are, says Mealy. After all, they control the family purse strings. I quoted research in my article that women are the ones making the financial decisions as head of the household, so the dive industry is not giving credibility to women calling them with trip questions or taking their training classes. It's doing the industry as a whole a gigantic disservice. It's not only morally wrong, it's negatively affecting growth. Divers of both genders should show their kids how diving should be a gender-neutral sport, Mealy adds. But kids see at home and insult your culture they mimic. My son knows nothing different between men and women divers. Mom and dad own a dive company together in their equal playing fields. I take them out for snorkeling trips. It's refreshing to see the majority of people don't care who's on a trip as long as they can get a chance to have fun. Women like to offer each other support and feedback, often online. The word of mouth can help hinder a dive business. Dive master Sarah Richard launched Girls at Scuba, the largest website for female scuba diving community, www.girlsthatscuba.com. Part of the reason I set up the site to discuss the challenges and obstacles on being a female in a male-dominated industry. Richard said the article for Shape about this topic. She also set up her own forum on the site to help other women who may be having negative experience in the industry. I don't think the Me Too was imperative with the all-female groups. It allows members to stand up for themselves and know they have support. Social media is also important for speaking out, like when Yayo Wang posted about her Captain Snooper experience aboard the Galapagos Aggressor. It's good to check online and see if there's a negative response to a certain dive operator, but having people used to speak up and having the confidence to do so is important. 
There's no place for sexual harassment, belittling women, belittling women, belittling, excuse me, belittling of women to happen in the dive industry or anywhere. And just as the Me Too movement here in the U.S., women speaking out about the ill treatment and bad situation they faced is leading to a lot of bed apples being thrown out and a lot of light shown on long, dark places. Dive trips should be fun for everyone. Women should be able to enjoy themselves without having to fend off idiots. The more women speak up and call out the offending idiots, the more scuba industry will and should have to ensure that there's places on a dive boat for everyone. And that was written by Vanessa Richardson, and she's a senior editor of Undercurrent and has been for the last 10 years. Yeah, and that's that's unfortunate that uh, you, ha- you have that sort of situations. Um, I don't think this is isolated to the dive industry. I think that this is going to happen in any industry. Uh, but you've got to factor in uh, location to this. Um, you're, you're going to parts of the world where things aren't as they are here and they're by no means perfect here. And then as they talked about in the articles, you've got people who are escaping. Uh, you know, they, they said it as uh, people were just taking time off from their other careers to do, to do to be in the professional diving industry. But I also think there are people who are leaving North America for getting in trouble in a variety of things, which could include this, uh, and just finding other locations to, to practice that in. So the question is, is this any higher prevalence in this as there is in the world, or is scuba diving it more likely to happen? I don't know. I, having uh, helped give classes, present classes uh, with both men and women or, and young adults in a college setting, uh, my daughter for one and her friend, I, I never – teach my own kid, even though I'm teaching around, <laughs> and or if I do a checkout, I don't check out my own. I would check out her friend as opposed to, you know, so there's none of this. I usually am harder on my own kid, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But I have seen some of this atmosphere in a lot of, and it is male-oriented or dominated sport. Skydiving is one. There's a lot more aggressive men skiers than women, and I think you see this macho issue a little bit especially in the younger guys, throughout. That's the way they are, it appears. can't remember. It's been a long time since I was a kid. But by the same token, I think it'd be interesting to hear about the women on uh, in our dive club. I would hope that we treat the ladies as we treat ourselves and our, you know, our other dive buddies. Yeah, because I, I certainly want more uh, female divers. We'd love to have a better mix in the dive club. I think we're probably... I mean, we haven't, we have always, at least since I've been in the club, we've always had female divers. Uh, and I think the ratio well, has, Im- has improved over the, over the years. Well, we've had a female president for the last five, yeah. which is always nice. Yeah. I, I like it also because of different perspective. Because we, we, I look at things different than my wife. Works. So it's good having some feedback and some check. And I notice in, in skydiving industry, for example, uh, those ladies are pretty much confident in what they can do and what they can't do, and you generally don't mess with those ladies. And they have some really fantastic organizations, that, you know, within the sport itself. So it's not like they have to tag with the guys. It's like they went out and got their own stuff and their own organization, you know. And 
some of theirs is a little risque because it's their group and it's not a guy's group, it's a woman's group. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Right. And but it's still an interesting article. It'd be interesting yeah. to get the feedback from yeah. other people. And and there's no excuses for it, guys, if if you are in a position as an instructor or a captain doing this, it's just not acceptable. Uh, not sure that it ever was acceptable, but it's it's certainly not now. Well, I know this is a little longer article than most that we talk about, but it, it's an important item, and it's something that should be talked about by a lot of the divers and dive clubs, and as a reinforcement to make sure we are doing the things the way we should be doing. You know, and a key item, like you said, is respect for each other. Yeah, and yeah, because there are several things. This was a very broad article. It was. I think she probably could have broken this out into three and had each of them as a as an individual topic. But one of them was just not trusting that women were capable of it, and I think that's a really outdated idea. Uh, and certainly, I mean, the, I, it, they're going to be able to do it better in many cases, and or the, as well, if not better, in many cases. When I when I'm the first comes to mind is better is uh, breath. Uh, most of them are much better at air management than the guys on average. But as far as ability, training, knowledge, there really should not be any difference between the sexes. I have not seen any studies studies that say metabolism is different where a woman is incapable of diving to different depths. So um, it'd be interesting to get both sides of it. Uh, is there is this something where somebody's anecdotally and that's probably not a correct word, but uh, is this something that they've they've developed over time? Is it going to be something they've observed uh, with uh, tourism, uh, why they would think that they need to question women more than men? Well, that surprises me from the aspect that normally when you're on a cattle boat or any of that, are they not looking at your sea cards and or your logbook entries to see if you're current? And that would give you an also an indication of their experience level. Well, and then she had the one the one uh, thing on the cattle boat was just the students that were coming on the boat. You know that they had assumed that you know that that was a woman uh, that she could not possibly be the instructor. And then you know their frame of mind was such that they were down there to to get lucky, so they were going to harass somebody. Which I'm not I'm not sure if that does that work. I I can't believe that. Even if you're you're trying to date, flirt, or pick up somebody, that harassing has really ever done ever worked. So, but maybe these guys uh, haven't learned that yet. So this is something for I think that there needs to be a broader movement within the dive industry to come up with protocols to address this. You know, because this I mean the the hotel industry certainly must have ways of addressing this. You know, if you're on a liveaboard. Well, the one that was a physical altercation with the young lady that we didn't go into details. The yeah. big those are legal items. Nothing to do with diving, right? You know, I mean, there's laws against that already. Yeah, but but things are so much worse. Uh, I can certainly understand if 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 you're on shore and you're at a nightclub and something happens like that, or you're in a business, it's easy just to. I'm not going to say it's easy, but you have the option of going outside. And down the street and calling the police. But when you're on a boat, that's already contained space. You, know, you, you, I can understand why somebody might hesitate on making a big deal out of it until they feel that they're at a, a place where there's where they can feel safe to report it. 
Oh, yeah. maybe I'll get some feedback. I'd be yeah. uh, interested in it. And hopefully if there's any yeah. ladies and or gentlemen out there that have something to say about the topic, I'd like to hear about it. Yeah. And and if somebody is is has some knowledge or depth into it, I, I could see us doing a couple episodes just on this. It'd be nice to have some experts in the area who could uh, uh, comment in. So, so let's talk gold. The Yes. This one's out of the Miami Herald, if you remember back a long time ago, and I'm sure we covered it at the time. Uh, a 17th century bar of gold was stolen from a Key West museum in 2010. It was valued at $550,000, the Mel Fisher Maritime Heritage Museum. Uh, it has gone to trial, the trial of alleged accomplice of the 2010 theft of the 17th century bar of gold, opened this week in federal court. Gerald Goldman is on trial for the theft that his alleged cohort had already admitted to in exchange for a lighter sentence. A jury was seated Tuesday, and opening statements are set to begin at 1.45 p.m. at the U.S. District Court in Key West. Goldman is accused of acting as a lookout at 5.15 p.m. August 18, 2010, so Richard Stephen Johnson could break in the display case of the Mel Fisher Maritime Heritage Museum, 200 Green Street, and grab the gold bar which is worth an estimated $550,000. Johnson is set for sentencing 10 a.m. July 2030. is not on the prosecution's witness list, however. Six people are, including an archaeologist that works with the museum. Both the arrested in January and charged with conspiracy to commit the offense against the United States and also theft of major artwork. The charges carry up to 15 years in prison above conviction. Federal law defines the object of cultural heritage as an item that is over 100 years old and worth more than $5,000. Initially, prosecutors said the bar hadn't been recovered, but pre-trial motions say a portion of the bar has been found and will be the focus of testimony. Judge Jose Martinez is presiding over the case. The bar is recovered from the Santa Margarita shipwreck in 1980 by the late Key West shipwreck hunter Mel Fisher and his crew while they searched for the Margarita and the Nustra Senor de Atocha Galleons. It had been on display in the museum for more than 20 years in a case designed so that visitors could reach in and lift the bar. And they've got there in the article, they show uh, a few photos taken from security camera. Love to find something like that, wouldn't you? I'd like to find it in the water. I mean, the display case seems like that's cheating a little bit. I'm just surprised that people didn't have long, good fingernails and sort of scraped it a little bit. You just you just take a little bit off each time. Well, you know that's why they had the ridges on your coin, just so you couldn't shave around the edges. Well, it's certainly an interesting item, and I can remember seeing that uh, they're showing that you're lifting the bar. But when you're letting every everybody handle it, why all of a sudden is this considered a historical? Uh, I mean, they they couldn't have cared that it was that much of an artifact. Because you're letting everybody just handle it. How how do you screw up a gold bar and you're looking at it? It's not it's not perfectly smooth. It didn't have all sorts of fancy writing on it. It's a nice ingot. Well, so I, I, I could see that. I mean, how, was, how do you? You're not going to hurt it by playing with it. No, it, it's, it's certainly an interesting attraction. But they didn't say how they got it out. Maybe that will come out in the trial. Did they uh, somehow break the glass or figure out a way of or this plexiglass? or figure out a way of positioning so they get it out, or did they uh, just pull the bar through? You know, they figured that they could 
just manhandle it through the opening. Uh, but it's interesting how this is. This always makes me nervous about these laws where something's illegal one way, but then they make it really illegal if it's something that they really don't like. In this case, because it was a, a an item of cultural heritage, the, the fines the the charges more. I I don't understand those type of laws. Well, I'm sure we will keep track and try to do a follow up for one of our next podcasts. We should be able to know in a week or two. Yeah, he should. He should. I'm I'm sure he's going to get charged. Yeah, in the chat room, Karen's saying it looks like the picture. You grab one end, turn it, slide it out through the holes. What I'm guessing is that there's a back to it, so that just the dimensions weren't quite right to ever quite get it out. Because if you look. It rested on these two plexiglass tabs. Somebody could probably get a pretty good shot of it. Uh, let's see. What's our next article? Super fit police officer. Oh, this is sad. So you would think that the being extra healthy would, would make it safer for scuba diving. And we normally don't cover all these negative stories, but uh, I, I think it's in our listeners' best interest to be aware of some of the risks. So a super fit police officer died while scuba diving after she went for a run the night before. Um, this is according to an inquest. Uh, she was diving in Grand Canary and might have lost her life by being super fit. An inquest into her death of Justin Beringer found recent exercise could have played a part in a tragedy. She had gone for a run the night before the dive, and possibly dehydration may have caused a condition that triggers muscle damage. This can affect various organs, such as the heart and kidneys, expert thinks. The British transport police officer returned to the Grand Canary with her fiancé last September, a year after they were engaged on the Spanish island, along with her mother and her mother's friend. But four days into the holiday, the 44-year-old Sitting-born Kent lost consciousness from 10 meters or 32 feet below the surface while an advanced scuba diving course. She was described as fit by her fiancé, Tina Best, and had dived around 27 meters but lost consciousness while resurfacing. Attempts to revive her in the boat's dive boat and the nearby harbor failed and she was pronounced dead. A post-mortem examination in Spain proved inconclusive. A subsequent postmortem in the UK gave the cause of death as decompression sickness brought about by scuba diving, but said recent exercise could have played a part with a lengthy run causing, oh goodness, radiosis, radiomo, you know, yeah. So uh, if you enjoy me mispronouncing, then you're probably having fun right now or drinking if it's a drinking game. Well, I hope not. People would be smashed. A form of muscle damage. Concluding that her death was accidental, coroner Eon Wade said, Justine is a short-distance runner, and she watched her health and took it very seriously. She went for a 40-minute run the night before death. She didn't seem to have suffered any ill effects, but it's proposed such exercise the night before may have played some part in what happened. Miss Best, a fellow British tourist police officer, was waiting for her partner to return from the dive when she saw a commotion at the nearby harbor. Not suspecting it was her fiancé, Miss Best returned to the dive center. She told the inquest, when I got to the dive center, there were two guys in there, and they arrived, and when I arrived, they stood up. They both looked at me, and I, and I like I knew, they both looked like rabbits in the headlights. I said, is that Justine? One of them said, I'm really sorry we did everything we could. My legs gave away after that. Those are the ones you always wonder about, like what really did. Yeah. Uh, 
I mean, you always say hydrate. So is there some element? It doesn't seem like exercising because it wasn't like, you know, if I, if I went on a trip and then I ran, how many miles did she run? Didn't uh, say it said 40 minutes. 40 minutes. <laughs> if, if in my present condition, if we, if we go someplace and then I go on a trip and I run 40 minutes a night before, there's going to be problems. <laughs> I'm just not in good enough shape to do that. But for somebody who's been conditioned to do that, had done it many times, it doesn't seem like a normal behavior. In fact, being a runner in my younger life, if you stop running, you actually cause Charlie horses. I can remember after a season of cross-country running, because you know, the first thing everybody on the team swears when the season's done is I'm never running again because, you know, unless you're just mentally ill runner, it hurts. It's not fun. At least I didn't like it. Maybe that's why I didn't become a competitive runner. Uh, but you stop running and your body says that's not normal not running and you, and you get Charlie horses. Uh, so it, if you're conditioned for it, you should be fine. I was never that athletic. <laughs> Yeah, Karen in the chat room uh, is saying, we see a lot of it in the ER from old ladies who fall and lay in a hard floor all night. The hard surface not moving from pain causes circulation problems and muscle breakdown. And she's saying that this is in relation to that diagnosis. But yeah, you, you wonder, because there's a lot of things that go affect, you know, dehydration. Uh, you know, she had probably flown to get down there. Uh, was she drinking in the, you know, uh, eating different food? You'd really like to know, especially when somebody who, for all apparent reasons, should not have had the problem she had. You'd, you'd, you'd love to find the cause so you can learn from it. And let's see, is the next one the uh, aquarium? Looking for scuba volunteers. So if you've ever wondered what it would be like to swim in one of the tanks packed with tropical fish, that's what Bill... Bill Dossus does on a regular basis cleaning tanks at the Oklahoma Aquarium. I've done 1,300 dives in lakes, oceans, rivers, streams, seas, and creeks, and I've probably done just as many in the aquarium. It's a lot more fun here, says Bill, a dive safety officer with the Oklahoma Aquarium. Not only does he get to spend time with the fish, but he also becomes part of the show. People come to see the divers and watch the divers. They play paper, rock, scissors with the kid. They pose for pictures. They've assisted with a few marriage proposals, says Jamie Gaylor, volunteer coordinator with the McQuarium. Sounds fun, fun, right? Well, if you have a scuba certification, you can do this too as a volunteer. We bring them through a checkout dive. We introduce them to the practices we use. And in all honesty, it's a best dive in Oklahoma. Just to be ready to do some cleaning, it sounds like a lot of fun, but it's also a lot of work. Not only do you have to scrub the glass, but also the coral inside to make sure it's nice and clean for the fish. Since the aquarium put out a call for volunteers, they've gotten a lot of feedback. We'd like a commitment of people for at least six months, the ability to dive two times a month. We only take certified open water scuba divers. The higher the certification level, the better the chances of getting in. The first step to becoming a volunteer of any sort is to go to the Oklahoma Aquarium website. There's a Get Involved tab and a volunteer application online. Fill out some paperwork, complete a death dive, and you're on the way swimming with the fishies. I like the way, though, they require six months guarantee you're going to work with them. Yeah, a lot of people would do it just uh, for opportunity to go dive in the tank. Yeah, you have, you have to commit to it. I want to say uh, we've done these articles many times over the years. There's uh, aquariums in Ohio, and then you've got the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. And they all, I think they even have a longer commitment. 
And some of them, I think, maybe make you do a deposit or buy gear or some combination. So each aquarium might have different rules, but they're they're always looking for volunteers, and they usually do want some sort of minimum commitment, both in duration and frequency, because they invest quite a bit. And as you said, why why not just uh, do it once, just to, to say you did it? And I'm always torn because you know this is volunteers. You know, you know, should this be something that they pay a professional to do? Not because well, I think it's dangerous, but because. You know, this is something that has to be done. Well, it's like candy stripers in a hospital. My sister did that. It was a non-paying item. It was a professional entry level, you know, to, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to be a, what is it, LPN, or at the time she was doing Right. So, I, you know, you, you generally in it because you're getting something out of it other than just to say, I did it for a week or a day. Right. I mean, I would certainly, if I get to that point in my, my life where, I've got the time. I would. I wouldn't mind committing a, a year of twice a month going to the aquarium and doing some cleanup. Be kind of be kind of a blast. A lot of people do it, and I do it just to geek to people who are going through the window. Mm-hmm. And here's something I think they didn't volunteer to do: oil removed from decades-old Swedish shipwreck. A diving contractors removed the oil from the wrecked research vessel Theatis more than 30 years after the vessel sank. When a fishery search vessel, Theodos, went down in 30 meters of water close to Schmogen on the coast of Sweden in 1985, it took a substantial quality, quality, quantity of fuel down with it. Quantities of the oil later escaped from the wreck and appeared periodically among the scaries on that part of the coast. What are scaries? S-K-E-R-R-I-E-S? Not sure. Uh, Norwegian specialists... Miko Marine said it had been asked by the Swedish Sea and Water Authority to if the Mosico hull penetration tool could be used to remove any oil remaining in the wreck, but the Oslo-based company was too involved in other projects to bid for the work of the time. Instead, Swedish dive company Marine Woods applied for and won the contract on the basis of using the Mosico electric remotely operated hot tap technology. The entire remediation work lasted for 13 days was carried out by Marine Works AB with support from Miko Marine AS. We are very pleased with the cleanup of the Thetis and is seen as a pilot project, said Christer Larson of Sea and Water Authority. The method of examining and then cleaning up the wreck by using remote-controlled underwater robots worked, and the oil on board was taken care of and no longer poses any environmental risk in this delicate archipelago. The Swedish Sea and Water Authority has only recently published its conclusion on the Thetis project and Mosico part was part of which was completed over two days in December last year. Two Miko specialists joined Marine Works dive team aboard their catamaran and took a single Mosico I'm, I'm probably just completely slaughtering this M-O-S-K-I-T-O Mosquito to wreck the wreck located 30 minutes from the port of Kungsham. Diver survey had identified the optimum penetration points in the wreck which were cleaned of marine growth by hand and by remotely operated vehicles to ensure secure fitting with the Mosquito's uh, three electric magnetic feet. Marine work divers had found substantial openings in tank filling pipes through which much of the oil had already escaped. Nevertheless, over the following two days, the port side aft tank and engine room were drilled and the 730 liters of oil that remained was removed from the wreck. The system has now been demonstrated on three separate occasions, which has been used to penetrate the oil tanks of wreck 
attach a hose and pump, and then extract the oil in the single operation. It recently removed 400 metric tons of oil from a wreck in the Thorco Cloud in the Singapore Strait. Speaking on the competition of the Thetis, of the completion of the Thetis project, Nikolai Michelson, general manager of Miko Marine, said, in addition to the ship and boats that have been lost in recent years, a huge number around the coast of Europe and elsewhere that have sunk during the Second World War. Many still have tanks containing heavy fuel oil, and after 70 years, they are starting to decay and cause unexpected deposits of oil on the nearby coastlines. It took a great deal of research and development work for us to perf- perfect it, but the success of these projects has confirmed our confidence in the technology and that of the clients who have been able to protect their coastlines by making use of it. So is this just a fancy way of saying an ROV that can drill a hole in the tank and suck out the oil? Basically, when they talk about hot tapping, mm-hmm. <clears throat> excuse me, or pressure tapping, it's, like you said, a method of making a connection to an existing pipe or pressure vessel or pressure wall without interrupting or having to empty the tank. And uh, where you can do other items while you're taking out the fuel. Interesting. Let's see. If you're down in the California area, Fish and Game Commission adopts emergency regulations to increase purple sea urchin bag limits in Sonoma and Mendocino counties. At its April 2018 meeting, the Calif- meeting, the California Fish and Game Commission adopted emergency regulations to increase the daily bag limit for the purple sea urchins taken while skin or scuba diving off those two counties only. Purple sea urchins fall under the general invertebrate bag limit of 35 per day, but emergency regulations now in effect will allow the daily bag limit of 20 gallons with no limit on possession. The emergency regulation will remain in effect for 180 days until November 6, 2018, unless extended by the commission. Upon expiration, the bag limit will turn to 35. A recent explosion in purple sea urchin populations off Northern California has prompted requests for increased daily bag limits as an option to reduce purple sea urchin numbers. The increase in purple urchin population is one of the several extreme environmental conditions contributing to widespread collapse of Northern California kelp forests. The California Department of Fish and Wildlife is collaborating with commercial divers, academic researchers, stakeholders to clear purple sea urchins in a series of test pilots in order to study the effectiveness in clearing and restoring the bull kelp ecosystem. CDF W and its partners are working on permits and procedures to conduct un, uh, to conduct controlled experiments to evaluate smashing compared to, compared to collecting purple sea urchins in these test pilots or test plots. CDFW reminds recreational participants that the new rec- recreational limit allows urchin collecting while skin or scuba diving by hand, and that there are regulations against waste of fish. Recreational harvesters of urchins must put harvest ur- harvested urchins to use. Smashing and disposing of sea urchins in trash is still illegal. Besides collecting purple urchins to extract gonads for eating, the urchins make good additions t- to compost material. That's what I was thinking. It's like, it, it seems like you could just throw them in the garden and that would get you by that. So it, it sounds like the only, I mean, why are people, is is a sea urchin something that people normally go for? I mean, I'm guessing. I believe on the coast out there it is. Not unusual to get sea urchin. I've never I've never had it. Huh. I'd be very curious if somebody out there again who has, uh, you know, tell us about 
how does it taste and how does, you know how much does it cost i'd be very curious now on the, so if you're going for the gonads do you, you know do you have to find out the find out which spines are its legs is that what you're doing <laughs> probably not oh okay uh hmm yeah i'd be interested to hear if it if they're tasty or not I wonder if there's any if this is at all related to the starfish problem that they've been having. Um, I'm trying to remember, and it's been a while since I've seen any of the videos, but it seems like somehow the urchins and the starfish somehow had some sort of balance. But I could be misremembering it. But it sounds like they're they're allowing this to happen because the kelp is uh, being severely destroyed by the sea urchins. But it seems like a lot of these sort of things go in cycles. I mean, we we see that here in Michigan, and it seems to be invasive species. But uh, I'll notice that you'll have a certain insect, and you'll just see it everywhere. And it might be that way for a couple of years, but then eventually something else comes and decides it likes to eat whatever it was that's come in, and the populations tend to go down. Right now, I'm hoping that something comes in for these damn stink bugs. Then another, since we're on this topic of invasive species, they have a muscle machine. Lake Pino is in the bottom of a Michigan bay. Said if you're a trained diver, there's no end to what you find at the bottom of any major body of water. Sunken treasures, beautiful coral reefs, or a a late Ford Pino. Diver Chris Roxburg found the ladder in Lake Michigan near Old Mission Bay. The Pino was stripped of its engine and other bits and possibly could have been dumped with hopes of starting an artificial reef a goal that seems to have achieved. As with most weird things in water, snow in the stories how Pino met its watery grave and its doctor at Scuba North in Traverse City, Michigan, told the Free Press one local legend is that someone placed it on the ice one winter and the car fell through as the ice thinned. Regardless, this just goes to show you never know what you'll find your next project. And that was in Auto Week, but I've also seen the article in another location, and it seemed like the car had been cleaned out a bit. It wasn't like a full-blown, intact car. Items had been removed from it before it was sank, and that's the way to do it. I had to make it. I had to make it environmentally safe. Yeah, and you notice how clear the visibility, the water visibility around that was. That is beautiful. Yeah, I think up at Traverse City that that way they got some pretty consistent, clear visibility up there. Another place where you'll find things underwater, we have $2 million in upgrades are slated for the White Star Park. Gibsonburg in Ohio, the Sandusky County Park District is planning a special ceremony this month to celebrate the start of a pair of improvement projects at White Star Park. Park Director Andrew Brown said district plans to complete a $775,000 water sewer extension project at White Star in conjunction with the county's Sanitary Engineering Commissioner's Office will bring water from Gibsonburg and send sewer discharge back to the village for treatment. A second $1.3 million project will be bring four new buildings to White Star, a new restroom at the campground, scuba, barn, and beach areas, and an ADA-accessible shower at the campground concession area on the beach. We want this to be closer to the parking lot, Brown said, with the new additions of the White Star Beach area. The foundation has already been laid for the restrooms, Brown said. He said White Star Campground Facilities will feature four shower stalls and men and women bathrooms in addition to the ADA accessible shower. Brown said the scuba area building is scheduled for completion this spring of 2019 and will include six restrooms. A group of Sandusky County Restores of Antique Power Scrap plans to make a donation 
to the park district for the White Star Barn Improvements. The park district goals have the campground's barn site constructed and completed by Labor Day. For the new buildings, about half of the $1.3 million will be funded through the state park district's wetlands mitigation fund and half from a federal grant. Spear Brothers Incorporated is conductor for the water sewer extension project. The project is being financed through a 20-year Ohio Development Authority loan. Ceremony to celebrate the two projects set for 2 p.m. on May 24th at White Star Beach area. And our friend of the show, Rich Sinewick, who his dive shop operates the uh, concession at White Star, has got to be pretty excited. I've, we've, we've talked to him a few times over the years, and he's been saying how they've been working towards this project. So congratulations. Uh, I still have to find a, I still have to get out there. Have you been the White Star in a while? No, I have not. I have not dove the quarry since the Salisbury quarry did. When you say Salisbury, is that the what it was called that's before? A, that, that, no, that's a defunct one now. That uh, it, they go in cycles. It seems like they they operate twenty, thirty years, and then they sort of go. Somebody has a better idea for the use of the property. Yeah, because you're not going to get rich running a dive operation. No. I like to say, you know, the way you make a a, a million dollar shipwreck, you know, looking for shipwrecks is to have two to start with. Yeah. <laughs> well, Karen says she's going to be there Saturday finishing up her underwater archaeology course. I know, and I'm really, I was hoping she'd have been there at the meeting so we could get some information about how that went training. But now when we see her at the next dive meeting, we'll be able to ask, what about the hands-on training? Yeah. yeah so she'll be able to see, tell us the progress of the foundation. And if I've got this article in the correct order, we have a wreck of the British boats from World War II found off the coast of Iceland. The wreck of British tugboat Empire World was recently found in, oh my goodness, there are letters in that name. I don't even know how to say what the letters are, let alone pronounce it. It's found in a bay. That's a real <laughs> easy way to say that. Off the coast of Iceland. How is that? <laughs> it is, those aren't letters. Uh, Faxafloy, Faxafloy, just off the southwest coast of Iceland. Of course, Iceland. Uh, I can't pronounce. In, if you're if you're from Iceland, not that I can pronounce anybody's name, but I certainly can't pronounce yours. Uh, the ship had disappeared on November seventeenth, nineteen forty four, with seventeen people aboard, including a sailor married to an Icelandic woman with whom he had a nine month old daughter. The British Embassy in Iceland and relatives of said crew members have already been notified. The Coast Guard found the shipwreck in the end of October. Uh, I said October, it's April. How do I get October from April? From the end of April, one of its vessels was sailing across the bay. The crew aboard the spotted unidentified mounds at the bottom of the sea where they believed could possibly have been the remains of a ship. Since there had been no records of shipwreck in the area, Coast Guard later sent a vessel, uh, Baldur, which is usually employed for a hydrographic survey to examine the mounds with, with a self-controlled submarine. It was only after a second tentative of immersion with the underwater camera, however, the crew managed to confirm the remnants found belonged to an Empire World. The fated Empire World is connected to the freighter. <laughs> These aren't letters. Godefoss and the tanker Schervin, which were sunk by German submarine in 1944, whose story is well known, the Coast Guard writes. However, not many people know about the tugboat that was sent from Reykjavik to assist the tanker. Although Chivin had been severely damaged by a German torpedo, it stayed afloat for some time before drifting off in flames. After Empire World was sent out for help, the tugboat disappeared, and nothing was heard of until now, 74 years later. 
Despite speculations, the Coast Guard is unsure what happened to Empire World. For instance, whether it met the same fate as Shivin, no records of tugboat being sank by submarine or found by German authorities, prompting the Coast, to look in, Coast Guard to look into weather conditions as a possible cause. No signs of collisions with the torpedo or naval mine have been found either, making the misery, miserable destiny of Empire World quite a mystery. The pictures of the area and the seas and the surrounding terrain sounds like that's going to be a very cold dive. I don't know. I, I know Iceland is supposed to be greener than Greenland, but just with ice in the name, it's not exactly what I'm going to think of as a tropical vacation. Now, this next article is, I had it loaded up, and now it, it crashed, and it's reloading. So we'll see how long that takes. That's usually a sign that they were trying to stream video or, or something. Well... That you're talking about the human bones found washed up on Kent beaches, yeah, or from historic shipwreck. You want to go ahead and do that one. Yeah, go ahead. Just set up bones have been washed ashore in the Kent beaches, which are thought to be from the local historic shipwreck. The gruesome discoveries have been made on two popular beaches following recent storms and gales. And uh, the interesting picture looks like a femur in really good shape. Uh, you could use it for a crutch if you're a short person. Uh, Thigh bone was washed up on Sandwich Bay. Another leg bone was found on the Esplanade, um, and it followed a stormy weather at the end of April. Uh, other discoveries include worked timbers and oak plant planks. Main finds have been found on the Kent Coast inshore from the notorious Goodwin Sands, which is a large sandbar which has claimed countless ships over the centuries. Um, gentleman from the Danch and Sandwich Coastal Finds Facebook group made the discovery at Sandwich Bay. So if you go there, you're going to be able to see a lot more pictures. Uh, they also said a let's see, another femur bone was also found, which was 43 centimeters. And I don't know my metrics. Anybody can guess on that one. Anyway, they believe the bones may have been one of the items that um, is being washed ashore from shipwrecks the waters off the bay. About two years ago, we started to get large ship timbers coming ashore. They had not been attached by marine bores, so they must have been buried deep in the sand for a long period of time. This is one part of the bay where timbers are washing up and other shipwreck material. I have found the flagon, I assume it was a drinking vessel, dating back to the 1700s, onion bottles, and I have to look at what that is. I don't know what an onion bottle is. Shoe leather and uh, quite a few bones, although you can't tell if they're all human. Uh, they knew the uh, femur was human straight away, though, from its, uh, the shape and form. In this particular area, I think the seabed has been disturbed and there is erosion and shipwrecks being exposed. Tests are going uh, to determine, ongoing to determine the age of the bones, though they are not thought to be recent. Bones are being carbon dated to determine their age and history detectives from a archaeological Society in Canterbury for carrying out examination. Uh, there is nothing at this stage to suggest there are suspicious circumstances surrounding the fire. Now, if that were off Detroit or something like that, it might be. It said the Goodman Sands are a 10 mile long sand bank at the southern end of the North Sea, lying six miles off of Kent, and has thought more than 2,000 ships and countless lives have been lost in that area especially since they're close to the major shipping lanes and ports of Dover, Deal, 
and Ramsgate. Notable shipwrecks include the HMS Sterling Castle in 1703, VOC ship, I'm not sure what VOC is, you know what that stands for, on Rothwick in 1740, the FS Montrose in 1914, and the Southern Goodwin lightship that broke free from its anchor moorings during a storm in 1954. Is, is VOC a vessel of the crown, maybe? Ah, that could be. Uh, several naval battles have been fought nearby, including the Battle of Goodwin Sands in 1652 and the Battle of Dover Strait in 1917. Sounds like a lot of good archaeological possibilities exist. Yeah. A Kent police uh, prison. Both officers carried out inquiries after human bones were discovered in the beach or on the beach. And it was on May 1st and May 4th, the last group that were found, which is after the storms of April. So far, they said nothing at this stage is to suggest suspicious circumstances surrounding the find. Now, if they find those are not old bones, I think they'll change their mind. Yeah. Well, the the old bones, I mean, how many people were lost in the wreck? Do they have any idea? Well, in that area, they said 2,000 wrecks, and they're talking thousands of people. Yeah, I guess over time you're going to get that. So if you're going to ditch a body, you want to ditch it there because they'll just think it's an old bone. I didn't say that. Uh, on the onion bottle, I pasted something in Discord. You can take a look at them. And I guess if you think of an onion kind of in like a nylon bag, the shape of that is kind of what an onion bottle looks like. Did I lose you? I must have got the wrong item because I just got back to Blue 3. Blue 3? The 10, 15-foot snorkel slash air supply device from last week. Oh, uh, oh uh, click on the live show chat. I'm going to say where I'm at. That way I'm not going to screw this up. Okay. Here, I'll, 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 I'll paste it into the, the room you're in. You're in the general room. Oh, I like those. Yeah, I, I, I'm not, I mean, I've seen similar ones. In fact, I, as a kid, I used to have one in my room. Uh, somebody turned it into a candle holder, but I didn't realize that's what they called it. it was an onion bottle because the ones I had seen would have like a wicker basket woven around the bottom of the bottle, which seems to be a lot of a lot of work for a bottle that somebody's just going to empty right away. Like to find some of those in the river. Yeah. And the next article we have up is a shipwreck mystery solved thanks to an 800-year-old made in China label. The piece of pottery has helped archaeologists put together a fascinating new detail about a medieval ship that sank off the coast of Indonesia. The wooden hull of the ship, which sank in the Java Sea, has long since disintegrated, but its cargo offers vital clues about the vessel. Fishermen discovered the wreck site in the 1980s, and archaeologists have spent decades analyzing objects found in the seabed. Salvage con- company Pacific Sea Resources recovered artifacts in the 1990s and donated them to Chicago's Field Museum. The ship, which was transporting ceramics and luxury goods, is now revealing its secrets thanks to a new analysis of the cargo. Experts published their findings in a journal of archaeological science reports. Initial investigation in the 1990s dated the ship to be mid-13th century, but we found evidence that it's probably a century older than that, said Lisa Nizolik, an archaeologist at the Field Museum in Chicago and the study's lead author in a statement. 800 years ago, someone put a label on the ceramics that essentially says made in China. Because of the particular place mentioned, we were able to date the shipwreck better. 
The ship's cargo included ceramic marks with inscriptions that may indicate the from Jinanging Fu, a district in China. Experts, however, note that the Mon- after the Mongolian invasion of China, around 1278, the area was reclassified as Jinning Lu. The slight change in the name tipped Nazolek and her colleagues off the shipwreck may have occurred earlier than the late 1200s and as early as 1162, they said in a statement. The likelihood of the ship from the Jenning Lu era carrying old pottery is slim, according to Nazolek. They were probably about 100,000 pieces of ceramics on board, which unlikely a merchant would have paid to store those for a long prior to shipment. They were probably made not long before the ship sank, she explained. In addition to ceramics, the ship was also carrying elephant tusks, probably used in medicine or art. Sweet-smelling resin, which could have been used for incense or for caulking ships, was also found. Previous carbon dating of the tusks and resin had dated the wreck between 700 and 750 years ago. However, improved carbon dating techniques tell a different story. We got the results back and learned the resin and tusk samples were older than previously thought. We were excited. We suspected that based on descriptions of ceramics and conservations with colleagues in China and Japan. It was also great to have all these different types of data coming together to support it. Dating shipwreck to 800 rather than 700 years ago is significant, according to archaeologists. This was a time when Chinese merchants became more active in the maritime trade, more reliant upon overseas routes than on overland silk routes, she said. The shipwreck occurred at a time of important transition. Shipwreck sites offer fascinating glimpse of the past. Last year, for example, experts announced the discovery of a century-old anchor Caribbean believed to be from the Christopher Columbus ships. And then they go into other links, which I think they're just trying to distract us. Interesting how they were able to uh, get more information on something that had been discovered quite a while ago. And are, are we to that point where we get to talk about stuff from outer space? This article, are octopuses from outer space? Octopuses are really, really weird masters of skies. They camouflage your skin on failing, flailing eight-armed bodies and dive hundreds of feet below the surface of the sea. Intelligent creatures have even been known to predict the odd sports results. Now a group of 33 scientists from respected institutions around the world have suggested these bizarre creatures descend from an organic alien material. The research published in the Journal of Progress in Biospheres and Molecular Biology ties a remarkable rise of octopuses and their cephalopod cousins in the theory of pansmira. This is a hotly debated concept. Various versions suggest microbes, viruses, and even tiny forms like the tardigrade may travel dormant from space rocks to space rock via collisions, eventually making their way to new planets. On a habitable planet like our own, they might wake up and thrive. Mass extinction events have killed a vast number of species through history. One of the events took place 544 million years ago. A few million years later, the planet began to see an explosion in critters now preserved in fossil records. It's a little imagination considered to pre-Columbian, or Columbian, pre-Cambrian mass extinction events were correlated with the impact of giant life-bearing comets, subsequent seeding of the Earth with new cosmic-derived cellular organisms and viral genes. The author wrote, in the case of octopuses, the author thinks cryopreserved eggs could have hitched a ride on Earth on icy bodies. Indeed, they wrote, the principle applies a sudden appearance of the fossil records of pretty well all major life forms. Tiny multicellular critters in the form of eggs, embryos, and seeds might have sprung from Earth after a voyage through space. And they go on. <laughs> well, I don't think it's impossible. I'm, I, 
uh, somebody's got to call me a little bit of a skeptic on this one. Is this how fake news gets started? It may be. I'm, that's I keep looking. Is that the, like a joke or some punchline? Because they're taking it as very serious. I, I I think it's a valid. If you're a researcher, it's okay to have a theory saying this is possible. But I'm not seeing anything in this article which shows that it's, happens. I mean, I think yes, eight limbs when everything else isn't, or that. Yeah, I'm I'm not buying it yet. Need a little bit more information. And then we have a photo of the week article. Mac, did you want to cover that one? Okay, I didn't know if you finally got it up there. Yeah, it's called A Hidden World 30 Meters Below Budapest. And it's uh, actually more of a little video tour. It's a mining leg- legacy. Countless buildings in Budapest, including the 1902 Neo-Gothic Parliament Building, built with limestone mired or mined from the Kobana District, meaning the stone mine district on the Pest side of the river. Centuries of mining started in the Middle Ages and dwindling down towards the second half of the 19th century, carved out an underground cellar system of more than 32 kilometers around 30 meters below street level. When wells and chambers in the lower parts of the mine flooded in the mid-1990s, the local government asked a small group of divers to clean up the underwater areas. The divers realized some of the chambers could be perfect for recreational diving. Switching over. Here's a picture of a guy all suited up, walking down some stairs into the water. And the water looks very clear. One of the regular divers is local telecommunications technician. Uh, yeah, is a local telecommunications technician who started diving to recover from a ruptured spleen, broken ribs, and a crap, cracked hip after falling from a rooftop in 2003. When a colleague suggested he take up scuba diving to help heal his injuries and rebuild his confidence to work on high-rise towers, he started diving off the coast of Taiwan and Egypt, not knowing that he could dive below his own city just four kilometers from his home. And they were first mentioned scuba diving beneath Budapest in 2009. I was very, very eager to find out how this could all be possible. He made contact with the master diving instructor with the local company, and I swear that says Paprika Divers, who introduced <laughs> him to the dive sites below the city. I, you're not the only one who could butcher names. <laughs> sure that's what it says. Uh, the first picture after he gets into the water has um, um, very excellent visibility and lighting. Uh, swimming down around a spiral staircase. And this is a metal one, not a wooden one, or a one that goes wall to wall, sort of open around it, the first picture. And it's, again, clear. Uh, another little paragraph, this is a video section. When you hang weightless beneath your home city, you're constantly reminded of its history. Without this, Budapest on the surface would never have been the same. And here's a picture of him. Uh, these are half-submerged alleyways in Causeway, so looks like you could do um, like Bonterre, uh, Bonterre Mine. Yeah. That if you need to, you can come up. It's not an enclosed. And uh, again, the visibility looks great. They have a lot of surface lighting, which is reflecting down. And uh, it looks quite entertaining. That looks like and a it, good it spot. Yeah, it doesn't say anything about how much it costs. It said, <laughs> um, oh, here's another, another section. Shows pictures of what it looked like underwater, the schematics. to the hidden world. There are four dive sites in the abandoned mine. Only one, called the Park Well, is accessible to divers with basic open water certification. Discover the chambers and staircases at the park 
have open areas of fresh air above them, and it's safe to dive there. The other flooded wells are enclosed and are only accessible by experienced divers with advanced special skills certification. I would imagine that meant cavern cave. The water temperature remains at approximately 12 degrees C, which we were told was, what, 52 degrees? Uh, yeah, somewhere around there. Yep. Uh, at the park, divers can dive 17 meters below the water surface, which is 47 meters below the street level. Takes up to 40 minutes to explore the chambers where disused mining and factory equipment can still be seen. You can actually see how the stones were mined. And from there it goes on about Budapest. And that does sort of remind you of Bonfair Mine, where you go down and look at the mine. It does. Well, well, I couldn't get the article to load when I pasted it into Discord. It did show me that photo of him going by the spiral staircase, and that looks very cool. Well, I think that does it for Scuba the News. Well, we had a packed section for tonight, which is probably to make up for, with all the rain, I doubt anybody's been able to get in the water recently. Well, actually, people have dove 16. Uh, we got reports on it there at the dive meeting the other night. Yep, Kevin said that uh, some of the platforms are in need of repair. They're still floating and functional, but they certainly could use some some maintenance, so there's some discussions going on on how that's going to be done. Right, and I believe they also got out this, uh, golly, I can't remember if it was even today. Thirsty Thursday? Up uh, off of South Haven, up at the rock pile. Ah, well, you, yeah. You, if the rather large area. Yeah, because you yeah. want to stay out of the rivers and the, and the uh, inland creeks because it's all, we've had tons of water. But if you can get out in the Lake Michigan a little bit, then... There's probably some good diving going on. I don't recall what he said the visibility was, but I know the river is not uh, the place to be right. Yeah, the river is going to take a couple of weeks to settle down, and by that time you're going to be past Memorial Day, and it's going to be packed with boaters and fishermen, so we're pretty much out of the river until fall. Yeah. And then I got to, uh, since it was raining this weekend, I decided that since I could mow my lawn to help a fellow muddy out with their boat, so we went over to Karen's. Bob was there and Ted and myself, and we went and uh, worked on uh, her boat, put a nice dive ladder off the back, and uh, got good ways into the progress of a windlass, which is always appreciated by the volunteer crew of a boat. The boat you want to be on is one of the windlass, because hauling an anchor with 300 feet of line out can be quite a chore. Uh, But uh, she's got a nice boat, just needs a little bit more work on, and I think it'll be great length worthy here coming up. I know she's anxious for the season to get started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 <laughs> right now the the money's been all going out, and you want to see some return on your investment, which is to actually get out and and do some diving. And then, as we talked about last week, we have the Mermaid Fest. Was it Mega Mermaid? I'm going to just slaughter names today. Yep, starts the 25th through the 28th in South Haven. Probably the key items most of uh, people will like will be the 26, which is the mermaid. Yes. Uh, visibility, being able to see him swimming. But that's also a pirate week up there in South Haven. Arr. So it's going to be freaking crowded. It yeah. always is. Uh, so what? They do have some good shows. What can go wrong with pirates and mermaids? I'm, I think I'm, we had an article earlier in this program about that. Yes. So I think the pirates are all going to need some sensitivity training before their mermaids and mermen 
show up. So uh, we'll have to look at that. They are looking for volunteers. So if you're going to be in the area and you want to volunteer, uh, you can visit their website. And then at some point, I'm I'm going to get underwater. I was going to say, it's always good to check the website because they have a multitude of activities that are going on. Uh, Like I said, the key items for me is the free wind, and that's looking at the mermaids. But they have presentations. (laughs) They've got events. So take a look at the website. I think you will be, oh, not to mention, really good pictures, really nice pictures of the mermaids. That in itself is worth looking at. So go to the site and check it out. Uh, Do you have a dive story for the week? Well, I had one, but we've been on quite a while, and this is a long one again. It's <laughs> another one of those well, we, stories. Okay. So let's see. Yeah, we're we're approaching, we're at about a, an hour and 15 minutes, and when I pull out the dead airspace, we'll be getting there. So is there any plugging you want to do before we go on? No, I already did it. We're talking about the uh, mermaids. Yep. And then if Kevin was on, he'd he'd tell you to go and appreciate your local librarians. And visit your libraries because uh, once they're gone, they're not coming back. And you also want to help out your local dive shops. It'd be this time of year, they're counting on you. If you're not going in and using them now, uh, it's going to be awful hard to get air fills when the dive shops are no longer around. And you should have already been there because you need to get your regulators maybe serviced, your gear checked out. Because if you're not starting to dive now, you're not going to be diving. It's no. maybe. Yep. So I've got to go pick up, June. Pick, up, pick up my tank. So that's uh, something on the, on the list. And, yeah, you need to get your visits done. If you're not, you're a little late. Uh, yeah, that's going to be uh, – I'm, I'm, we were talking about the, at the end of the dive meeting that at the Great Lakes again, the weather has just not been real convenient for getting out there in the lake. So we're hoping that it'll be summer last year that once it does settle down, we get a good two or three months of nice weather to get out there, maybe do some lawn mowing out there. Lake. Well, Bob got out there uh, off the DNR launch, and if you looked at the pictorials, there is no pier because they're underwater. The water's so <laughs> high and fast. So you had to have hip boots or your dry suit on or wet suit on before you even could launch your boat. Ugh. Yeah, the river river's up a tad bit, and then and then our incredibly local news, uh, the Bering Springs Dam, which is here in my hometown, is uh, uh, they're going to be lowering it an extra six, six inches a day for the next week to be able to do some maintenance as a result of the flood. So I'm betting that somewhere along they think they, they had a little bit of scrubbing going on that wore away some of the concretes. So they need to evaluate that and maybe do some hydraulic concrete repairs to uh, make to continue to ensure that dam doesn't fail. Nothing worse than a dam that fails. That big wall of especially water going down, down the river. Yeah, if you're downstream especially. Yeah, could be a little upset. And the trailer park has already been flooded out once this year already. Yeah, they they can end up condemning, I think, about 20 trailers, at least in that area. So I just hope that before they let somebody put trailers in the same spots that they, they at least try to raise them up another foot or so. Well, that won't do, you know, your 100-year floods. At least it would get you away from the 30- and 40-year ones. And then, as always, we certainly appreciate your support. If you like the show and like to help out, Go on to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Click on over to the Patreon links and uh, give us a little bit of donation. Any amount is appreciated. $3 or more will get you early access to the show notes. Uh, We understand if you can't, but we certainly hope you can. So I think we are to that time of the show. 
Well, I am sitting back, I'm relaxed, and I'm ready. Well, this one's going to be kind of dangerous. It's another one from Rod down under, and I'm a little concerned when I don't understand the punchlines. So probably what happens in those situations is somebody is laughing their head off at the end. But I'm not sure I get it, so maybe you'll have to explain it to me. So here we go. A rabbit walks into a pub and says to the barman, Can I have a pint of beer and a ham and cheese toasty? The barman is amazed, and but gives the rabbit a pint of beer and a ham and cheese toasty. The rabbit drinks the beer, eats a toasty, and then leaves. The following night, the rabbit returns and asks for a pint of beer and a ham and cheese toasty. The barman, now intrigued by the rabbit and the extra drinkers in the pub, because the word gets around, gives the rabbit a pint and a toasty. The rabbit consumes them and leaves. The next night, the pub is packed. In walks rabbit and says, a pint, and, a pint of beer and a ham and cheese toasty, please, barman. The crowd is hushed as the barman gives the rabbit his pint and toasty and then bursts into applause as the rabbit wolfs them down. The next night is standing room only in the pub. Coaches have been laid on for the crowds of patrons at, oh, couches. I said coaches. Coaches, couches have been laid on for the crowds of patrons attending. The barman is making more money in one week than he did all last year. In walks the rabbit and says, a pint of beer and a ham and cheese toasty, please, barman. The barman says, I'm sorry, rabbit, old mate, old mucker, but we are right out of ham and cheese toasties. The rabbit looks aghast. The crowd is quieted, quieted to almost a whisper. When the barman clears his throat, nervously says, we do have a very nice cheese and onion toasty. The rabbit looks him in the eye and says, are you sure I will like it? The masses bated breath and ears shatteringly silent. The barman with a roguish smile says, Do you think I would let down one of my best friends? I know you'll love it. Okay, says the rabbit. I'll have a pint of beer and a cheese and onion toasty. The pub erupts with glee as a rabbit quaffs down the beer and guzzles a toasty. And then he waves a crowd and leaves, never to return. One year later, in the now impoverished public house, the barman, who has only served four drinks tonight, and three of them were his, calls time. When he's clearing down the now empty bar, he sees a small white form floating above the bar. The barman says, who are you? To which he is answered, I am the ghost of the rabbit who used to frequent your pub. The barman says, I remember you. You made me famous. You would come in every night and have a pint and beer and a ham and cheese toasty. Mass has come to see you and this place was famous. The rabbit says, yes, I know. The barman says, I remember in your last night we didn't have a ham and cheese toasty. You had a cheese and onion one instead. The rabbit said, yes, and you promised I would love it. The barman said, you never came back. What happened? I died, said the rabbit. No, said the barman. What from? After a short pause, the rabbit said, mixin' me toasties. And I'm, and I'm not sure. Is that funny? Mixin' me toasties? Uh, I'm not sure. Do I need it? but... I'm not sure of the punchline either. <laughs> not either. Okay, I, where's our interpreter? Do I need to where's do it? Should, should I do it with a Scottish accent? Did, is that what it needed? Scottish, British? I just don't think I have an accent to pull it off. Where's Crocodile Dundee when we need him? <laughs> mixing me toasties. Mix, mix, do I need to say it quicker? Mixing me toasties? I don't know. I don't either. Now, he's probably laughing his ass off, but I... I We'll have to wait. Tell us if it was funny or not. <laughs> it was a real good lead, man. You know, I'm going to go to the pub and watch was, that rabbit. I would watch him. <laughs> so on that note, 
go out there and get wet. And stay safe.